Well, thank you, Barry, for reading so clearly, and thank you to all those who've been involved in the service today. Um, my name's David French. For those of you who don't know me, I'm one of the elders here, and I'm uh, very much looking forward to school starting soon as a high school teacher. Beck, thank you so much for a wonderful children's story. Where is Beck? There she is. Isn't it great that we can live in Australia? But isn't it even better that we can belong to the family of God? So that's a really precious uh, children's spot. Thank you so much, Beck. Well, to start off with, I'd like you to use your imagination. Can you just imagine this scene? Here we have Mephibosheth, uh, a surviving descendant of King Saul, who was the first king of Israel chosen by God himself. By rights, Mephibosheth is the heir to the throne of Israel. Yet here he is, living miles away from Jerusalem, in a pokey little place on the other side of the Jordan River. To tell the truth, Mephibosheth is just happy to be alive. He was only five years old when the terrible news came through. Both his dad, his precious dad, and his grandfather, the king, were killed in battle. His dad was Jonathan, first in line to the throne of Israel. And as his only surviving son, Mephibosheth, that was a hard one, isn't it, is de- was destined for the same glory. But now everything was so, so different. He has a lot of time to think. As he's sitting down, he looks out at his useless feet. In a haste to get him away to safety, his nurse accidentally dropped him, making him crippled. Now that he was a young man, at least he was alive. But he realised it was pointless, daydreaming about what might have been. King David was on the throne, He was in total control and he was chosen by God. If he wanted to, David could make sure he would never challenge him for the kingdom. Suddenly, a group of men arrive in chariots at his place, Little Hicksville, where at Whoop Messengers from King David himself, they summons Mephibosheth to come with them to Jerusalem. He has no choice but to go. Wondering if this was it, the end of the road. But the messengers seem friendly enough. And so eventually they arrive in Jerusalem, they carry him into the palace. They come into the throne room itself before King David. And what does Mephibosheth do? He bows down before the king who holds the power of life and death. What will happen next? King David calls him by name, Mephibosheth. And he humbly replies, Behold, I am your servant. And the rest is history, as Barry read for us. An extravagant display of kindness and of grace. King David restores to Mephibosheth all the property of his grandfather, King Saul. Now what this means is that he's got a guaranteed source of continual income for the rest of his life. So his money problems are all sorted out. His finances are sorted. Not only that, Mephibosheth is told he will always eat at the very same table of King David. In effect, he has all the benefits of royalty. He's living like a prince, as he really was. He's living like a prince in the palace alongside all of other King David's 
sons. Now, how do you think you would re- respond to this extravagance, to this grace, to this kindness, if you were in Mephibosheth's shoes? Would you think he would be arrogant enough to say, well, you know, it's only what I deserve. After all, I am the rightful king of Israel. No. He's overwhelmed with gratitude. He has a deep humility. He is so thankful to David. What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? A term of great humility, a dead dog such as I. We know that the king remembered his covenant that he made with his best friend, Prince Jonathan. David honoured this covenant after Jonathan was tragically killed by taking in Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, into his very household. And this beautiful account that we see here in 2 Samuel is a shadow of a far more extraordinary display of grace and mercy in the New Testament. It points to the stupendous truth that through Jesus we are adopted by God himself into his family. We can join with Jesus in calling the creator God of the universe Abba, Father. Guys, we're on the cusp of a new year. 2016 stretches out before us. Do you sometimes feel anxious about what the year might hold? Are you sometimes overwhelmed by the pressures of life? Are there times of uncertainty and stress in your life? Do you yearn for the security of a father's love and protection and care and kindness? Well, today we want to look at at what it means to be adopted as a child of God, to be members of his family, to truly grasp what it means that God is our father in heaven. So we should ask God now for his help to really grasp this truth deep in our hearts. Gracious Father, we do thank you that you reign in majesty sovereignly over this universe. You are the creator, you are powerful, you are glorious, and yet you love us and you delight in calling us your children. We pray that your Holy Spirit would impress this truth upon our heart, that we might trust you that we might find our identity solely in being your child. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Uh, We're continuing our short series on Christianese, those sometimes strange words the Bible uses uses that don't always make sense. Now, we're not talking about all the churchy jargon that you can see on the screen behind me, uh, the jargon that we sometimes invent that might confuse outsiders. I'm all for getting rid of the mumbo-jumbo that might garble the good news of Jesus. But the thing about this short series is that we're actually looking at biblical words. So I think it's really important that we understand what these biblical words actually mean. Uh, Two weeks ago, we started off by looking at regeneration, which simply means to become spiritually alive or born again in John 3. Then last week, Bill uh, talked to us about justification, how we are declared right in God's sight, even though we are so sinful, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. And over the next couple of weeks, we have a real treat in store as we look at sanctification and glorification. Folks, did you know that we are all bound for glory if we have our trust in Jesus? 
We have a glorious future to look forward to. And all of these big theological ideas are incredibly important to understand because they are biblical words. They all describe different aspects of what it means to be saved by God. Good news indeed. But today, the word we're looking at doesn't really seem that difficult. Adoption. might even sound a little bit boring, if you want to be honest in your heart. Adoption, it doesn't really sound that exciting compared to those other four juicy, deep theological terms. But nothing could be further from the truth. Understanding adoption is at the very core of who we are as Christians. God the Father is the one who graciously adopts believers in Christ into his spiritual family. We are granted all the privileges of being heirs with Christ. It means, as Christians, we are all brothers and sisters in the family of God that meets at North Pine Baptist. Now, one theologian, J.I. Packer, boldly declares that adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Now, that's a really big call. When we think of justification, we think of regeneration and so on. But it's got a point. When we realise that adoption emphasises the nature of the relationship we have with God through Jesus. The almighty creator of the universe is our father. And we are his children. Nothing can rob us of this relationship. What an incredible privilege. First, a little bit of background to adoption. As we all probably know, adoption is where someone takes on the full legal responsibilities as a parent of a child that is not their biological child. It's a cause for great joy where a precious little baby or toddler is welcomed into a loving family. This adopted child has all the rights of a biological child, including that of inheritance. It's a beautiful thing when this happens today, and I commend it to you strongly. But back in the Old Testament, adoption wasn't really a big part of the Jewish legal code. Uh, The closest we come to it is the account we read today in 2 Samuel chapter 9 with King David and Mephibosheth. We might also think of Esther, adopted by her relative uh, Mordecai in the citadel of Susa in the Persian Empire. But to get the New Testament idea of adoption, we need to fast forward to the Roman culture of Jesus' time. Jesus was born into a province of the Roman Empire. And in Roman culture, adoption was a very big deal. Many wealthy Roman families of the upper class were desperate to have a legal heir to inherit all of their status, all of their wealth. If they couldn't have their own child, for whatever reason, they would adopt someone to fulfil this role as a son. But there's one big difference to today. They would not adopt a baby. They would not adopt a toddler. They would adopt a young adult to be a suitable heir. So young adults here in the congregation, listen up carefully. Uh, They would carefully consider the merits of the young person to be adopted. They would assess their character, their education, their wisdom, their common sense. 
would this person be a worthy member of our family? No pressure, hey, young people. And I've got an example for you. The most famous example of all was Octavius. And he was adopted by no less than Julius Caesar himself in 44 BC. And so Octavius, even though he came from a well-to-do family, became fabulously wealthy, incredibly powerful and rich. And Octavius became the first Roman emperor. We know him today as Caesar Augustus. And so before Julius Caesar was tragically assassinated on the Ides of March, Julius Caesar thought that the 18-year-old Octavius was a worthy heir to follow him as leader. And for whatever his shortcomings, Julius Caesar was a worthy judge of character. Octavius lived up to his potential. Now, the thing about adoption was that it was considered an incredibly high honour. Under Roman law, an adopted child could never be disowned. In contrast, now children, listen up, a biological child could be disowned. Don't worry, boys, I'm not going to disown you. Um, (laughs) um, So the adopted child actually had an even higher status than the biological child. An adopted child could not be disowned. So an adopted child became a permanent member of a new and prestigious family. They had a new surname, they had a high status, they shared in the wealth and privilege of the new family. They were guaranteed the inheritance. Incredible honour, incredible privilege. And so it's this Roman background that sets the scene for what we read about adoption in the New Testament. Keep that in mind and let's have a look at what the Word of God says in Romans chapter 8. We're going to be reading Romans chapter 8, verses 15 to 19. Romans 8.15, Paul writes this. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us and to us. Now, Romans 8 is one of those mountaintop chapters in the Bible where we get a glorious vision of all of the blessings of the gospel, including the absolute certain hope of our salvation, the assurance of our salvation. Verse 1 famously starts off, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of the gospel, We are no longer condemned to face judgment if we are in Christ Jesus. And so in verse 15, Paul is explaining to the Christians in Rome that when they put their trust in Jesus, they receive the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of God himself indwelling the life of the believer. And here the Holy Spirit is described as a spirit of adoption as sons. It is because of the Holy Spirit, sent from God the Father and God the Son, 
that we can cry out to the eternal God of the universe, Abba, Father. No other religion refers to God as their Father. But Paul goes even further, using the Aramaic term for Dad, Abba, a familiar term that combines great tenderness as well as respect. What a breathtaking privilege that the God of the universe would choose us, would choose me, to be his child. Not only can we join in with Jesus in praying to the Lord God Almighty as our Father in heaven, we can even use the same term, Abba, that Jesus used when he was praying in the garden at Gethsemane. And so Paul follows this logic through relentlessly. If we are adopted as the children of God, it follows that we're heirs also of everything that God has. We are guaranteed the inheritance of God himself. What an extraordinarily gracious God we worship. How extravagantly good is God that he should not only forgive us and save us from the judgment to come, he also chooses us to be members of his very own family. Now, as a dad myself, I only want the very best for my three precious sons, whom I'm embarrassing at the moment, just over there. But I fall far short of being a perfect dad. Just ask my boys after the service. They will list my shortcomings with great glee. And maybe you didn't have the best experience with your dad growing up. My heart grieves for you. We might have had good dads. We might not have had such good dads growing up. But how much more better is our Father in heaven. So the big point we need to remember is that God chooses to adopt us. We are given full rights as his children. We are heirs with Christ and look forward to his glorious return and fulfilment of the kingdom of God. And this identity is really, really important. It's crucial when we suffer. It's inevitable. We're going to suffer. But our present sufferings pale into insignificance compared to the glory that will be revealed when Jesus fulfills the kingdom of God, life as it was always meant to be. Now, I'm mindful of time, but this truth is confirmed elsewhere. So if you're taking notes, during your devotions this week, you might look, want to look at Romans 8.23. Um, you might want to look at Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. You might want to look at Ephesians 1, uh, verse 5. And let this truth that we're adopted as God's children, to really sink into your heart, to meditate upon it, to reflect upon it, and what it means. But as we look at these passages, it's not a little bit jarring to us modern people to notice how often our adoption is referred to as sons. What's with that? Uh, how does that make our sisters here in the congregation feel? It's a, it's a, a good question. It's a question we can't duck. Well, again, it reflects the Roman cultural practice where the adopted sons get all the benefits of the new family. But the New Testament takes it one step further and extends the benefits of being a part of God's family to everyone who believes, both men and women. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all sons and daughters adopted into God's family as the children of God who are in Christ Jesus. And we see this in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. 
1 John chapter 3, 1 and 2, the beloved disciple says this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. The Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God. And that's what we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. As beloved children of God, both females and males, we are co-heirs with Christ, the Son of God. What kind of extravagant love the Father has given to us. What a gift. But there is one condition, friends, one condition to this amazing identity. We need to receive this gift. Now, let me share with you something I came across over the holidays. Dick Smith has been in the news for all the wrong reasons lately. Uh, That's the store, Dick Smith Electronics. Dick Smith himself sold it donkeys years ago. Um, But late last year, Dick Smith and his wife uh, were travelling throughout India. There is a photo of Dick and Pip enjoying their retirement. And I was immediately intrigued as I saw this news article. I love India. I have a deep affection for the place, having lived there. And Dick and his wife, Pip, thought the best way to really experience India was to travel by train. Uh, And so they went from Mumbai, the commercial heart of India, to New Delhi, the capital of India. And Dick Smith loves taking photos, just recording his journey for all his memories. And the story goes that as he was taking photos, as he trundled along on his train, he took this very photo that you can see behind me. He took a photo of a little girl and her family living under a bridge. In India, desperately poor people seek shelter wherever they can. Our rent is not cheap, actually, in the big Indian cities. And as Dick Smith was looking at this photo, suddenly he was struck by a desire to specifically do something to help this precious little girl and her family living there under a bridge. What can you do? You can't ring the bell. Oh, sir, can we just stop the train? I just want to get off and give 10 bucks to this family. What can you do? Well, we know Dick Smith is a can-do sort of guy. He organised for some friends of his, a younger couple, to try and find this very girl and her family, to try and help them out, to do something to help them. What did they have to go on? Well, they had that photo that we looked at just previously. He had a rough GPS location of where the bridge was. So there's the young man, he and his wife, toddled off to India to try and find this little girl. They had three days. Uh, To cut a long story short, this couple managed to track them down. They were able to get in contact with some officials in the city and say, where do you think this is? They tracked down this precious little girl and her family, obviously a little bit uncertain. Why do these Westerners want to have anything to do with us? Uh, And they found out that this precious little girl's name was Divya. Uh, They found out that her dad was working as a plasterer. He was earning the equivalent of about $5 a day. Um, which provided for the essentials, but you know they couldn't afford to rent out a place to live, which is why they were living under a bridge. Children, can you imagine living under a bridge? And so this couple followed through on what Dick Smith asked them to do. Uh, they went to the bank. They organised for them to get a bank account. They had to ring the bank in advance saying, hey, we've got a homeless family coming along with some officials. Don't turn them away. Um, you know, they're going to open a bank account. 
Uh, they made sure enough money was put into the bank to pay a bond for a place to rent out, to pay the rent. They took the little girl and her family shopping for clothes in a shopping centre. They made sure she was able to go to school. They checked out the school that was the local school. And Dick Smith thought, you know what, I want to give some money to this school as well and help improve its facilities. Wow, what a difference. My heart was just so stirred by this generosity. What a difference this is going to make to this whole family's future. They've got a place to live. This girl's got an education. It's going to transform her life. She has hope for the future. Do you think that the parents of this little girl would think twice about accepting this gift? Do you think they'd listen to all the conditions and say, well, thanks very much, Dick, but, you know, we'll just say no for now. We're we're good. The thing is about this girl and this family, they had to accept this extravagant gift from Dick Smith. And they were just so thankful. They were just so overwhelmed in their gratitude uh, for this generous gift. And so it is with us. We need to accept this gift that God offers us. In John chapter 1, an amazing section where the Gospel of John opens up about the Logos of God, the Word of God who became flesh. We read this in John 1, verses 11 to 13, which tells us a stupendous truth about who Jesus is and what he'd done. Jesus came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. But to all who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Contrary to popular belief, Not everyone in this world are automatically the children of God. Now, that's not a popular view, but we are not automatically the children of God. By all means, we affirm that all humanity is created in the image of God. They have an inherent dignity created in the image of God. But each of us needs to decide to receive Jesus as Lord, to believe in his name for the forgiveness of our sins, for salvation, for life everlasting. So I have one question for you today. Have you received this gift of life in Jesus? Do you trust Jesus for your life, your eternal life? Because incredibly, when we do this, the Bible tells us that we are adopted as the children of God, whom we can call Abba, Father. Grasping this truth of the privilege of being adopted into God's family makes all the difference in the world. It means we are not defined by how much money we have or don't have. We are not defined by what job we do or don't do. We are not defined by what we look like or by what we hope to to look like. We are not defined by our circumstances whether it's happy or it's tragic. No, our identity is based upon the fact that we are eternally adopted as the children of God, our Father. Nothing 
can separate us from his love and his care and his concern and his kindness as our heavenly father. This is where our identity is as the children of God. This is where our identity must be even when our world falls apart. No wonder J.I. Packer declares that adoption is the highest privilege a Christian can have. How should we respond? The closer. Well, even more than Mephibosheth in Jerusalem, or Octavius in Rome, or Divya in India, our response is one of being overwhelmed with gratitude and humility and thankfulness. We are completely secure in our Father's hands as we grasp this truth deep down in our hearts. We can grow in trusting God our Father. Like a child secure in his life comes into his presence, we can come into uh, before him in prayer and say, Abba, Father, your will be done in my life through Jesus. Amen. Let's pray and ask for us to grow in trusting God as our Father. Lord God Almighty, creator of the universe, who knows each star by name, who sovereignly oversees everything in this world, who created the incomprehensible complexity of life on this planet, who rules in absolute authority and majesty, thank you for loving us. You who dwell in majesty and glory and power and light, who cannot tolerate any hint of darkness and sin, thank you that you not only made a way for the penalty for our sin to be paid for, but that you also delighted in adopting us as your child. Help this truth to sink deep down into our hearts, Father. Help us to grow in our trust and childlike dependence upon you. Help us to see ourselves as your children, as the core of our self-identity, that no matter whatever else happens in this life, we belong to you and nothing can take us out of the palm of your hands. We humbly give thanks for this grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.